0: Good afternoon and welcome to another episode of Straight Talking English. I hope you like my little theme tune. I've got a mate who's been saying I should try a little theme tune for ages. So here it is. Today we are going to be talking about Sherlock Holmes. I am your host, as ever, Catherine, str 8 English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com and if you go on Amazon, you can google well if you go on amazon you can search i mean don't search google on amazon you're gonna get something weird you can find the full context series of books we have christmas carol we have jekyll and hyde and i'll be giving you some sneaky peeks from my next one the sign of four today a little bit of admin i'm going to be dropping down to once a week for the podcast for now because my work schedule has just gone crazy also big props to any new listeners i have just been featured in pod bible issue four i cannot believe that i am really really flattered and many thanks for them so the awesome 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 thing about doing victorian authors is that we can have interviews with them frequently on tape. Oh my God, I am so amazed to hear the voices of the writers that I talk about. So the question, of course, to start with is, what inspired AC, Mr Arthur Conan Doyle, to write Sherlock Holmes? Up next, we have the interview with him from 1930. 30 the audio is a little bit weird but this is the man himself explaining exactly what he thinks went through his head when he thought of Sherlock Holmes
1: Let's see now I've got to speak one or two words and just to try my voice I understand well there are two things that people always want to ask me one of them is how I ever came to write the Sherlock Holmes stories and the other is about how I came to have psychic experiences and to take so much interest in that question. Well, first of all, about the Sherlock Holmes stories, it came about in this way. I was quite a, a young doctor at the time. i had, of course, a scientific training and uh, I used occasionally to read detective stories. It all annoyed me how in the old fashioned detective story the detective always seemed to get at his results, either by some sort of lucky chance or a fluke, or else it was quite unexplained how he got there. He got there, but he never gave an explanation how. Well, that didn't seem to me quite playing the game. It seemed to me that he's bound to give his reasons why he came to his conclusions. Well, once I began to think about this, I began to think of turning scientific methods, as it were, onto the work of detection. And I used, as a student, to have an old professor, his name was Bell, who was extraordinarily quick at deductive work. He would look at the patient, he would hardly allow the patient to open his mouth, but he would make his diagnosis of the disease and also very often of the patient's nationality and occupation and other points entirely by his part of observation. So naturally I thought to myself, well if a scientific man like Bell was to come into the detective business he wouldn't do these things by chance. He'd get the thing by building it up scientifically. So Having once conceived that line of thought, uh, you can well imagine that I had, as it were, a new idea of the detective and one which it interested me to work out. I thought of a hundred little dodges, as you may say, a hundred little touches by which he could build up his conclusions, and then I began to write stories on those lines. At first, I think they attracted a little, very little attention, but after time, when I began the short adventures, one after the other, coming out month after month in the Strand Magazine, uh, people began to recognize that it was different to the old detective, that there was something there uh, which was new. They began to buy the magazine, and uh, it uh, prospered. So I may say, did I? We both came along together. And uh, from that time, Sherlock Holmes fairly took root. I've written a good deal more about him than I ever intended to do, but my hand has been rather forced by kind friends who continually wanted to know more. And so it is that this monstrous growth (laughs) has come out out of what was really a, a comparatively small seed. But the curious thing is, how many people are around the world who are perfectly convinced that he is a living human being? I get letters addressed to him. And I get letters asking for his autograph. get letters addressed to his rather stupid friend, Watson. I've even had ladies writing to say that they'd be very glad to act as his housekeeper. One of them, when she heard that he had turned to the occupation of keeping bees, wrote saying that she was an expert at... Segregating the Queen, whatever that may mean (laughs) And that she was evidently predestined To be the housekeeper of Sherlock Holmes I don't know if there's anything more I could say with advantage About him
0: I can never quite get over being able to hear people's voices And I'm a little bit obsessed with those old Pathé films as well so he named his professor Joseph Bell as being a main influence on Sherlock Holmes now I can just tell you I can give you one example of Bell's deductive powers which he which AC shared in an autobiographical note he said I had the ample chance of studying Bell's methods and of noticing he often learned more of the patient by a few quick glances than I had done by my questions. Occasionally, the results were very dramatic, though there were times he blundered. In one of his best cases, he said to a civilian patient, Well, my man, you've served in the army. Aye, sir. Not long discharged? No, sir. A Highland regiment? Aye, sir. A non-com officer? Aye, sir. sir stationed at Barbados. Aye, sir. You see, gentlemen, he would explain, the man was a respectful man, but he did not remove his hat. They do not in the army, but he would have learned civilian ways had he been long discharged. He has an air of authority, and he is obviously Scottish. As to Barbados, his complaint is elephantitis, which is West Indian, and not British to his audience of Watson's it all seemed very miraculous until it was explained and then it was simple enough it is no wonder that after the study of such a character I used and amplified his methods when in later life I tried to build up a scientific detective who solved cases on his own merits and not through the folly of any criminal. Well, get you, AC. That's pretty good, isn't it? I would love to be able to do that whole deduction thing. But he mentioned in his interview that he was well into detective fiction as well. And there were a couple of characters who I think, and also a lot of scholars think, informed him. Mr Dupin... D-U-P-I-N, Dupin, Dupin, I don't know, I've mentioned this before, with my accent, I cannot do romance languages, I sound like Del Boy, I'm all right in German, and I'm all right in Mandarin, but anything else, I'm like, oh god, but yeah, Dupin, he was written by Mr. Edgar Allan Poe in The Murders of the Rue Morgue. If you don't know the story, it is really, really cool, actually. Um, a family are found mysteriously murdered. No one came in, no one came out. There are fingerprints and footprints, but they are not recognisable. <gasps> Japan, who happens to just be like a passerby but a really informed passerby realizes it was done by a monkey by a tremendous orangutan who escaped from the zoo like ledge <laughs> just brilliant in one of his earlier novels in study of scarlet ac has holmes Explicitly say, I am better than Dupin. Watson goes, Ooh, you must be like him, and Sherlock Holmes is like, nah, I'm better. He's described as being Sherlock Holmes before Sherlock Holmes. A genius detective. But Poe's stories, and there were three involving this Dupin guy, created the genre. They mix crime with a detective narrative that revolves around the Who Done It, inviting readers to try and solve the puzzle too the key figure in such a story is the detective we are reading about the detective rather than the criminal and we're going along with trying to solve the puzzle at the same time they're also both not policemen they're both independent people who tend to do better than the police so I'll come back to this a little bit later. But basically the idea of the police is kind of a new thing and they are kind of amateur hour. But Poe invented other elements that home that were borrowed for Holmes as well. Uh, genius detective, ordinary helper, impossible crime, incompetent police, armchair detectives, the locked room mystery. AC himself said, where was the detective story until Poe breathed the breath of life into it? When I'm just thinking like breath of life, considering as he's considered the most goth man in the universe, it just makes me giggle. Though, side note, Poe is the connection between this side of lit and the other side which is the poetry poe was a massive fanboy for elizabeth barrett browning who wrote so sonnet 29 i think of thee and he actually dedicated the raven to her because he was such a fanboy so there you go everything's connected another literary character who might have informed sherlock holmes is a guy called inspector cut he was invented by a guy called Wilkie Collins his main book is called The Moonstone and it was published in 1868 Doyle definitely read Wilkie Collins when he was a young man specifically when he was just starting out in his practice The Moonstone is so close in plot to The Sign of Four and I really really recommend reading it because it's quite accessible it's not too formal and fuddy-duddy it has a lot of opium smoking and part of the mystery is someone trying to quit smoking it's absolutely brilliant you've got a lost treasure from india we've got comings and goings but this guy inspector cuff is amazing he talks through exactly what he does and it gives him a chance to work with an average guy in this case a um he has a doctor's assistant and he has this like butler type dude, it kind of contributes to this formula. The fact that the mystery is solved by Cuff's sleuthing, and he created a detective who potentially, he sometimes blunders into things, but shows that intervention is beneficial rather than threatening. Even though he's a police constable, he's bought out of retirement to do this and the police kind of just sort of show up and go well no problem here and then you go the other interesting thing that he does is show that crime can happen inside the home it's not that um, you go out on the streets and there's a crime crime can happen in your home and that is scary for Victorians The domestic sphere is something sacred something to be cherished and the fact that there's crime and criminals coming in and violating it like honestly I can identify with this so a couple of months ago I got burgled I was dead tired from a night of work because I do like shift work um, with my day job, I slept through it and we woke up the next day and the front door was open and me and my partner's laptops had gone and all of our bags. It was horrible and I felt absolutely violated by the fact that someone had come into my home and done that. That's the kind of fear that a Victorian might feel and it's so, it's such a unique occurrence that that's why I have this feeling. But if you've had a flatmate or a guest that won't leave, you know, like the party's winding up and there's that one guy who's not getting the hint, this sense of your home, your space being intruded upon, that's the kind of discomfort that you're supposed to feel. There is Arguably a real life dude who contributed to Sherlock Holmes as well. So there's a whole market of books that's like the real, uh, the real Sherlock Holmes. And there's a load of people who are like these celebrity police officers. But the one who I enjoyed the most is a French guy called Eugène François Vidocq. Or Vidocq, V-I-D-O-C-Q. He had the most insane life. If you know Les Misérables, he was the inspiration for Jean Valjean and Javert, so the prisoner and the police officer. <laughs> he escaped from prison about 25 times, engaged in this like weird semi-criminal supergrass kind of lifestyle. But eventually set himself up as a private detective. He if you paid him 20 francs a year, or five francs a case, he would work with you. He had um, some criticism, (laughs) because he was allegedly a former criminal, but was potentially still a criminal. He said, in the criminal underworld, two and two do not make four, two and two make 22. The best way to tail someone without being seen is to walk in front of them. (gasps) He was very, very famous, And there's been a movie made out of him, made out of his life, sorry, Uh, I haven't seen it. I don't really want to ruin the fabulous perception I have in my head of him. But he cashed in on his notoriety towards the end of his life by holding an exhibition in London and writing his autobiography. So this is someone that he would have been aware of. And he was in London at the time that AC was in uh, the south of England so it's reasonable to assume that ac was aware of this let's talk about the audience as well so we know unsurprisingly that the home stories were a huge success And one of the reasons they were a huge success was rather than writing a novel that was a series um a bit like um i'm gonna get this wrong because there's a difference between series and serial and i can never remember what it is but the way charles dickens wrote his books where you got a chapter a week but it was one long book is very different to the way that conan doyle did it he would do a short story every week or every issue in this magazine called the strand and you get to know the characters and be guaranteed a new adventure every week so if you didn't like one adventure, you just wait till the next week and try again. Whereas Dickens' model, you sort of had to be committed to the whole thing. Like, if you didn't like one chapter, you'd probably cancel forever. It caught the imagination of readers in a way that no other fictional character had done before. There were cues at news agents the day a new issue was due. By the time the first series had been completed, Holmes was an iconic figure. If you had a Holmes story... In the magazine, it boosted circulation by a hundred thousand copies. Like, let's just think have that sink in for a little bit. So we're at the point where we have eight to nine million Londoners, and a hundred thousand would be quite significant today. London is much smaller. This is a huge deal. Allegedly, when Holmes got killed off um the first time people were wearing black armbands like it was a funeral in the street it was so popular because it was so innovative amateurism so he's not a professional but it's kind of this cult thing of anyone can get up and do anything and we've got it today like you can join an amateur football team you can join an amateur acting company you can get up and do it yourself Doyle was obsessed with cricket and he would set up his cricket teams and it was that kind of vibe of he's just getting out there he's just doing it Holmes is brilliant and incredibly intelligent. And I was reading an article that suggested that we could diagnose him with Asperger's. So plus for my Asperger's brethren out there. But he does not have a profession. He didn't even finish a medical degree. In some ways, he's quite ordinary. That relates to the audience. We have the growth of a market for the first time ever after the 1870 universal education act by the time Holmes shows up we have a young and educated readership who are also a little bit skint the first home story cost 5p it was one shilling and the strand was sixpence so it was actually way cheaper it was really an affordable luxury anyone with a little bit of cash in their pocket could go out and enjoy this story and for the first time the public is there and they are ready for this this is the sort of thing that Dickens cashed in on as well the little bits little bits making things available to everyone also plays on people's fears Like I mentioned, the home's plots play on people's fear that your home is going to be violated by crime somehow. But there's also technological fears. We're at the tail end of the industrial revolution. We're at the tail end of the 19th century. And technology is increasing rapidly. Technology is still going on. Things are changing still. London is in a state of flux. There are new people arriving. there are police on the streets for the first time there's new crimes there's mass media telling you about crimes people are afraid of things changing the british empire as well and this is actually going to get its own very awkward episode in which i try really hard not to cuss about racism the empire is declining at this it won't really officially end until things start breaking up and countries gain independence but we're not too far off Australia gaining its independence in 1901 we're a long way off India gaining its independence but we're getting close to things starting to break up people are nervous about what this means there are people returning from the empire returning from where they've been posted in india in canada wherever and they're not fitting in with the way of life dickens kind of addresses this a little bit as well especially in little dorrit where arthur Clennon is an expat from china people are nervous There's also the Indian Mutiny of 1851, which again is going to come up in the Empire episode and also comes up in the book, is scary. We are getting news reports that people we don't know about, scary people who are different, in this case, uh, Muslims and Hindus, but at the time, you know, if things are scary, things are new, they're rising up and they're killing British guys, oh my god, and that's how it's reported in the press, and it is that kind of rhetoric that's used now, for like, you know, anyone could rise up, blah blah blah, Sharia law and all that, it's a scary time, and Holmes books are really successful, because they tap into people's fears Holmes is also a little bit idealised bless him, he's part of this what i've been calling the gentleman cult so i covered this in jekyll and hyde but it bears repeating so some people think that when um faith became on the decline in the uk church attendance went down in general people weren't that interested in you did have the growth of some newer religious organizations like the Salvation Army but in general people were just like I guess so because people had this excess of needing rules the idea of being the perfect gentleman came up a set of guidelines for how to live your life and you got all these self-help books called the best one is of course called self-help by Samuel Smiles that started the genre you got these rules these aims for how dudes should live their life and Holmes fits it to a T. He is not involved in any like divorce cases. He is not interested in anything that he says is quote unquote not cricket. He is quite upper class in his behaviour. He's very chivalrous. His English decency. He might have had one love affair potentially with irene adler in um scandal in bohemia but he always has this impeccable english gallant okay cool He's also really emotionless. Watson's like, you're like an automaton. And he's like, yes, that's awesome. Because this idea that a man can show his emotions, any emotion, is ungentlemanly. So yeah, he plays into that so much. He's also very high tech and scientific. I'll talk a little bit more about this when I talk about the plot next week. But he takes cocaine, a lot of cocaine. And that's a good thing because he is a brave scientist experimenting on himself. That's what a good scientist does because he's so noble. He's also like looking for chemical solutions rather than natural products. That's quite forward thinking. He talks about footprint. When they see the footprints in Sign of Four on the ledge, and Holmes is like, Oh, it's like a child's, playing into this weird racist thing that non white people are like children. He's using footprint technology that along with fingerprints is something that our good friend Vidoc pioneered which is why I think there's this connection he also talked about rigor mortis the idea that if you look at the body's muscles after death you can sort of get a clue of how long the body's been dead for that is new the weird obsession with poison as well <laughs> like in a lot of his books there are poisonings like Speckled band there is a classic poisoning by a snake that the idea of the science of poison rather than just being like casual oh it's poisoning that's a new thing the idea of using forensics at all let alone on poisoning victims is a big deal he is a very scientific man he is the perfect gentleman Symbolically, we can look at Holmes as representing the ideal Englishman. It's this thing that gentlemen at uh, public schools were taught how to rule. And part of that terrifies me because their next boyfriend I had when I was 18 went to a super posho boarding school. And he said that in their PSHE lessons, like citizenship, whatever you want to call it, they were taught that it's fine to be offensive. Oh, sweet Jesus, if they're taught that is being okay, oh my God, explains a lot, doesn't it? But he symbolically is the perfect Englishman. He is scientific, he is modern, he is reserved, he is gallant, he is honourable, he is talented, he runs rings around everyone else, he is in charge of the situation, and he is england he also symbolically preserves the idea of englishness as opposed to empire he's keeping the status quo in place so if you're scared the empire is breaking down you're scared your sense of englishness is changing then you call Holmes and he will keep everything in line Holmes was really 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 popular and he still is I mean come on the amount of people who go to bloody 221B Baker Street and get obsessed with the Benedict Cumberbatch series which I really loved the first season but then I just sort of forgot about it like this is the start of this iconic detective and he is Awesome, he is awesome, and when we look at the sign of four, we're seeing the emergence of like the homes that we know and love. This very technologically advanced, this very idealized man, kind of getting a bit more into his stride after the first one, after his first outing study in Scarlet. So, what we see there. Is the yeah, the grown-up poems, getting where he wants to be, man of action. We love it. Right, next week I will be back with talking about the plot of Sign of Four. I'm gonna admit, first time I read through it, I was like, I don't get this, but I think I was tired. Second read through, it makes a lot of sense. We're gonna talk about boat chases. Super exciting and I might even diverge to talk about London. So one more thing. If you are excited about the New Voices Conference, which will be on the 12th of October, the day after I drop this next episode, I will be recording the talk I am giving at a conference. It will be on how to tackle context when teaching literature. So you guys have that to look forward to. Feel free to skip if you are not really interested in that, but I hope you are. Strh 8 Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkenglish.com. Amazon, the Full Context series. Get excited about The Sign of four, which is coming out. It's going to have a green cover. Lots and lots and lots of love. And try and solve some mysteries.